What I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning is something pretty simple, something I think everybody is at least a little bit familiar with, and that is people. Because as we know, there are all kinds of people in this world. And we can look about around this room and see that we have all different kinds of people, even in this room. And you know, we encounter all different types of people every day in our lives, wherever we're at. And I want us to take a moment, each of us, just take a moment and stop and think about that. And think about the types of people that you encounter every day in your life. Whether you are at work, whether you're at school, whether you're at the store, think about the different types of people that you see and you may interact with. You know, we see different races. We see different economic statuses and classes. We see people with different attitudes, people that look and dress a lot different than us. And, you know, some people we just have more in common with others. Some people we flock to more than others. We want to be around people that have similar tastes and things like that, and we just get along with better. And that's just human nature. But I've been thinking about this a lot lately as I've started teaching high school again for my, my round two, uh, looking at all the different types of kids that I have and that I come in contact with, because I teach uh, about 150 kids, and then of course coming in contact with hundreds of other ones around the school, and yeah, I see those different kids and they walk into my room and, um, you know, some of them I enjoy having in class, some of them I don't enjoy as much maybe, and some of them I want to go sit in the hallway while I teach. But, you know, I can't play favorites. We have to try not to do that. I have to teach them all. That's my job. And, you know, the same principle applies when we look at the church world, when we look at the spiritual world, because every person out there deserves to have the chance to hear God's word and to come in contact with God's blood, not just the people that we have things in common with, not just the people that we enjoy being around, but everyone. And fortunately, the blood of Christ works on everyone. And even more fortunately, there is an unlimited supply of it. It's not going to run out, obviously, until Christ comes again. But right now, we're not going to draw a cap. Oh, that's the 107th person. No more. There's an unlimited supply of that blood. And there's a shortage of a lot of things in this world, but there's an unlimited supply of God's grace. So should I not care about one of my students when he walks in and I don't really like the way he's dressed or, I don't know, maybe his eyebrows pierced or something? Because, you know, kids walk in that first day and I look at him and I think, oh, man, this guy's going to be trouble. I can just tell. And sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes a month later, they're awesome, and I love them, and they're great kids. So we have to be careful we make those judgment calls. And I just think, thank goodness God doesn't look at us like that. Thank goodness he doesn't look at what I'm wearing some days and think, oh, Scott, nope, not, not with what he's wearing there. You know, we, we can't be that way, because each one of those kids I have in my class, whether I enjoy them or not, you know, they deserve to at least get my best effort for an education. That is my job. They are afforded a free public education, and that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm even supposed to differentiate what I'm teaching to reach all the different types of kids and at least make that effort. Sometimes it doesn't work, and you have to kind of dust off your hands and try something different and move forward, but you got to try. And the thing is, everyone out there in the world, all the different types of people, deserve our best efforts in trying to teach them the gospel and trying to talk to them about God's word. All those different types of people, God loves them all. 2 Peter 2 and 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. In Matthew 20 and 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This commandment is pretty unmistakable. It was to go out and teach everybody, not just, hey, go teach your friends, 
Go teach your next door neighbor, the people you like, the people you have stuff in common with, the, thing, the people that you think can be saved. Because sometimes that's where we have to be careful. We, we look at people and we think, yeah, that person might be receptive. Not that there's anything wrong with that too, but we can't forget other people. And the thing is, when we look in the Bible, there are examples of all types of people being saved and being converted. And we're going to look at a few of those different types of people today. And the thing is, no matter where they were at in their lives or no matter where you're at now, when you come in with the contact with the blood of Christ, it changes them. It changes their status from condemned to justified. It changes your eternal destination. It changes your purpose. It changes your attitude. It changes your outlook on things. And the thing is, we can't be unconcerned about some people. Because I think that shows a disregard for our fellow man. I think that shows a lack of respect for God's word and an absence of God's love in our hearts because we can't play favorites. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Whosoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. John 13, beginning in verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. But the thing is, sometimes we do play favorites. We can't help but do that. But the Bible, as I said, shows us a wide variety of people loving God and becoming Christians. And we're going to take a look and we're going to see that there's the tough guy, there's the con man, there's the busy working woman. There's all different kinds of people that we see in the Bible that are going to come in contact with that blood of Christ and be changed. And we're going to take a look at a few of them now. What I want us to do is try to think of some of the people in our lives that these people might remind you of. Maybe somebody you've overlooked as someone to teach the gospel to. Maybe you thought you just wouldn't have any luck with that person based on what you've seen about them. But the thing we have to remember is we can't judge a book by a cover, by its cover. That old saying is true. So let's start off talking about somebody and looking at the busy working woman. You know, it's easy in life to be controlled by our jobs, by our quest for money, by things of the world. And sometimes it's not even this overzealous thing. Sometimes we just want to provide for our family, we want to provide better for our kids than we had. We want to make sure they have security in their futures. But sometimes things just get so busy that we don't feel like we have time for anything else. Do you know anybody who says, when things slow down, I'll start going to church? Have you ever met anybody like that or had a friend that says that? Or somebody says, oh, when the kids get a little get older, I'll start going to church. I have somebody in my life that I've talked to, and, and she says that. And so I've heard that before. And I ask you, do you have friends like that? Maybe even a working mom that you know that you find yourself criticism sometimes for not being at home, not being spending more time with the kids, not spending more time with the family. You're like, ah, oh, she's just too wrapped up in her career. That's where all her focus is. So do we criticize those people or do we try to help them? Because sometimes these people just need a little bit of encouragement, somebody to care, somebody to take the time. Because the thing is, we do not know what's in their hearts. And I know that's kind of a cliche. We say a lot from the pulpit, but it's so very true. We do not know what's in their hearts. But you know what? God does, and God can open that heart, and Christ's blood can still save them, can save anyone. So let's take a moment and look at a busy working woman. Let's look at Lydia. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 3, it says, And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you, have judgment, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. 
So there's a lot of things I want to just pull out of this as we take a moment and look at it. It says that she was a seller of purple. And, you know, purple, as far as I can tell, is a very expensive dye that was applied to different fabrics and different items made. So she had a job selling this um, kind of expensive item. So that implies to me that she was probably a woman who was doing okay. She probably had some means. Um, she was probably someone that had, was a little bit of demand because she had this valuable dye, this valuable product that she was selling. So she might have even been respected because of this highly coveted product. It says that she had a household, so that implies a lot of things. Now, it doesn't say who was in that household, but we can make some basic thoughts. Um, she may have had some kids there. She may have had a husband there. She may have had extended family there. And it says that she had a household, so implying that she's probably caring for the people there. She's probably caring for that household, as well as this job that she has that we know that she spends a lot of time with. So this is a busy woman. She's pulled in a lot of directions. But then it says she had them into her home, right? So that's implying that her house was big enough to bring these people in, to hold several visitors, plus her household that was mentioned there already. So again, to me, this saying she probably is, is doing okay financially, which means she's probably good at her job. And when we're good at our job, that probably means that we're dedicated to it, that we spend a lot of time on that job. In verse 40 of the same chapter, it says that they went back to the house of Lydia later and they saw other brethren there. So again, that's kind of giving us the idea that this may be a larger house that can fit a lot of these different people in there. So what do you think about Lydia, maybe if you didn't know her? What would be some conclusions you might draw? You just see this busy woman running this business with this expensive uh, dye that she's selling, that, this rare and fine product, trying to take care of a household, running this, uh, this nice big home, probably has lots of money. We look at all these things, we might think, well, she's probably stuck up. She doesn't have time for me. She doesn't want to hear what I have to say. She doesn't need this. In fact, she needs to be home with her kids. I don't even need to talk to her. That's what she needs to do. We might even be a little bit intimidated by somebody like that. But it also says, when we read the scriptures, that she worshiped God. We might not have known that if we just stopped at the beginning. In fact, she stopped selling this money-making product she had so that she could worship on the Sabbath. She could have probably made more money that day, but she chose not to. She chose to worship. And to me, that's indicative of the kind of heart that she had. And we know the Bible warns us of the love of money. Think about the rich young ruler. Remember, he did many, many good things. But he couldn't put God ahead of his money and worldly goods, so he walked away sad. Remember Matthew 19, 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Remember, Paul instructed Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And see, Lydia, she listened to Paul and the things that he taught, and it said that her and her household were baptized. So that busy woman... She was also busy worshiping God. She was worshiping under the old law, but she heard Paul, and she was baptized. And then she invited them into her home, and she became an asset to God's work. All she needed was somebody to take the time to teach her. She was willing, but we might have accidentally looked past her if we weren't careful, assuming she was somebody that we couldn't reach, assuming she was somebody that didn't want to hear what we had to say. But the thing is, Christ's blood can reach anybody. Now, what about the tough guy? You know, some tough guys in your life. I've known a few. I feel, like, I feel like I've known a bunch. You know, maybe guys that, I don't know, maybe they're rough around the edges or maybe they're ready to solve a problem by arguing or with their fists instead of their heads. Maybe somebody that's a little difficult to be around sometimes. Maybe they're bossy. Maybe they're arrogant. Maybe that guy this morning that in a big jacked up truck drove by you and cut you off. Maybe it's that guy. Those are the things that we think about that kind of go through our head, isn't it? Maybe this guy's intimidating sometimes. You know, and you think, that guy doesn't have the heart to be a Christian. He is not interested. He would probably laugh at me if I talked to him about God's word. 
But what I want us to think about is the Roman military. You know, the ancient Roman Empire spanned from a time period of, what, 145 B.C. to about 476 A.D. And at its peak, this empire centered around Rome was one of the most extensive and powerful in all of history. And, I mean, their army was mighty. It was one of the most extensive and vast armies and vast empires. And they conquered throughout northern Africa, the Middle East, Europe. And they were a a bloodthirsty and ruthless military that probably did a lot of things that we don't want to think about. So at full strength in this army, a legion could consist of 6,000 soldiers. And each legion was divided into cohorts of 600 soldiers. I think I said 6,000 and 600 soldiers. And then each cohort was further divided into centuries, which uh, comes from the Latin word centum, which obviously we're familiar with this century, 100 years, uh, 100 cents, and a dollar. And then they were commanded by a centurion. So think about that individual. What type of man is going to be a centurion? A man who is over a hundred of the most well-trained soldiers in the world. Probably a guy you do not want to mess with. He's probably strong. He is probably brave. He's probably feared and respected by those around him. He's probably a good fighter. And he's probably seen a lot of combat. Because that's what they did back then. They fought and they conquered. And he's probably done some pretty bad things, in a sense, in his day. He's probably a little arrogant. You probably have to be that way to be in command of a hundred dudes that are like that. It's not going to be a soft man that can rule over guys like that. So he's probably kind of scary. Now, at the same time, these are generalizations that I am making. You know, and the same kind of guesses we might make about someone we don't know. When we think, ah, they're not going to be receptive to God's word. That guy, I don't even want to talk to him. I am scared of that guy. But let's take a look at an example of somebody like this. Cornelius Centurion. Oops, wrong green button. Acts 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. So here we got Cornelius the Centurion, probably a scary guy. Think about all the things we just talked about. I don't want to teach this guy. I mean, this guy probably kills Christians. So I'm going to go talk to him about Christ. Verse 2 says, though, that he was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So it says he's a devout man. It says that he fears God. Not only him but his household, which means he's taking time to teach them. And he cares about them, and he wants his family to be taken care of. And what's interesting about Cornelius, he's living in a country that's worshiping multiple pagan gods, yet he is familiar with his Jewish religion. Jewish religion, he's praying, he's giving, he's worshiping. So would you have guessed that about this guy? Maybe when you saw him, or you thought about him, or he cut you off in his big truck on the road? You wouldn't have thought that about him initially, probably. But he just needed something. So... Picking up verse 3, it says, He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thy alms are come up for memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, I'm jumping forward here, into verse 24, into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and he had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself and also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Jumping ahead again. But, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. 
So this tough guy that we were scared of initially, Cornelius was worshiping under the old law. He just needed someone to talk to him about the gospel and to teach him. And what did he do? He went and got his friends and his family together. He brought other people together to hear Peter. And then they were baptized and they became Christians. Would we have taken the time to talk to the tough guy Cornelius? Or we have looked past him as the kind of person who couldn't become a Christian? So what about the rich and powerful? Do we know any rich and powerful people? I don't know. I don't really, I don't think. But I think about a rich rich and powerful people, maybe a politician, maybe an advisor to the president, someone with a lot of influence, someone who oversees lots of money, someone who has a lot of power. Again, do you know anybody like that? Can you think of anybody like that in your life? You know, well, the movies would tell us that they're obviously greedy and corrupt and they're bad people and they would assume kill their mother then do something good. Not the kind of person we should be associating with. And they're probably stuck up. They're probably very intelligent. They probably certainly do not want to hear what lowly I have to say. They're probably very busy. They're probably in love with themselves. They're probably in love with money. Now, do we really know those things for a fact? No, but those might be thoughts that run through our head when we think about those kinds of people. So let's take a moment and look at the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So here is obviously a rich and powerful man. He's in charge of all the treasure of the queen of Ethiopia. He has great authority. He's also of a different race. Think about that at the times. And he's probably riding some caravan full of, I guess, chariots. And he's probably riding in the fanciest one and probably has a lavish lifestyle. He's probably wealthy. He's probably in the one that's all gold laden. It'd be very, very intimidating. He's probably used to telling people what to do and they probably snap to it. So we see this man. There's no way this guy's going to want to go to church with me. No way this guy's going to listen to what I have to say. But, you know, if we stopped right there looking at that individual, we might think that. But if we look further, we look at this, we're going to see a lot more, just like when we read on here. Picking back up, it says, He was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so he opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they were come up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. See, that man had a desire to understand God's word. It just took someone taking a moment to stop and talk to him. He just needed help. He just needed a teacher. And he needed someone to care and someone to take that time and make that effort. And guess what? Christ's blood works on the rich and the powerful too, just like everybody else. Now, what about this next guy? What about the con man? That's a little different. All of a sudden, we're talking about somebody who may be breaking the law. Someone who's preying on the weakness of others for his own personal gain. Somebody who probably is lying and deceiving people. 
Not a good person. You know anybody like that? Hopefully you're not hanging out with them. But you may know some people that at least when you see them, you think, man, that guy just seems shady. I wouldn't trust them to be in my house when I wasn't looking. No way that guy could be a Christian. No way that guy's going to go to church. Am I supposed to teach that person the gospel? Well, let's take a moment and uh, let's look at Simon. Acts 8, beginning in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him that they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. So Simon, this is not a good man. This is a bad guy. Essentially, ripping people off in the name of religion. You know, I remember when I was a kid, my dad watching televangelists as they were in the 80s, as they were all getting caught doing something and all getting arrested. And I remember he saying, that is just the worst thing, ripping people off in the name of religion. And that is basically what this man was doing. He'd been doing it for a while. Not the kind of person you want to be around. Not the kind of person you think, well, I'm going to talk to him about God. Obviously, he's interested in that. It's a scary guy. But let's keep reading. But when they believed Philip reaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, Simon makes some questionable decisions later, but at this time, he heard God's word and he believed and he was baptized and he followed. So this con man was changed by the blood of Christ too. This con man was saved as well. And that's the beauty of the shed blood of Christ. It's freely given to everybody. No matter what others may think of you, even though we may have thought this was a shady guy, it did not matter. No matter what you've done in the past, it does not matter. That blood of Christ will wash you clean. It washes away the sins. It changes your destination to heaven. So that man, the con man, can be saved too. So what about our last person? What about our zealous activist? You know, we live in a world full of causes now. We see them everywhere. Go walk around on a college campus and you will see some interesting causes. I was at Berkeley University in California. And man, people were approaching me with pamphlets for some things. I didn't even understand what they were causing and fighting for. But they were very, very passionate about those things. And everybody wants to find an issue and fight for it. And everyone has a social issue or something they believe in. And there's nothing wrong with that. Things that you want to fight for, things that you want to believe in. But some people do it to the point of being irrational. They're going to extremes, oftentimes for something that you probably don't even agree with or something that may be contrary to your core beliefs, what they are teaching, what they are fighting for. So you think, man, there's no way that person's going to believe what I have to say about the Bible. They're teaching and talking and fighting for things that are contrary to that. I don't like them in their cause anyway. That's silly. Think that? I mean, I see some of the clubs the kids start at school, and I think, oh, that's silly. What are they doing? Because they're, they're out there. They're trying some different things. They're wanting to find themselves. But you know who was a zealous activist? Paul. You know who wrote half the New Testament? Paul. So let's take a look at that. Galatians 1.13. For ye have heard of my conversion in time past from the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Acts 8 and verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Acts 9 and 1, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters for him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him. Oop, getting ahead of myself there. Got to stop there. So we see this man who's killing Christians, going into homes and literally hauling people off in front of their families and their kids and putting them in jail. He was literally a terror to Christians, not someone I want to talk to about Christ. But you know who thought he was worth saving? Jesus. That's who took the time to talk to him. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell down to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So remember, the Lord at this time told Ananias to go find him at the house of Judas. But remember, Ananias was scared because he'd heard the reputation of this man who was a terror to Christians, who was hauling them off and killing them. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord told him to go and talk with Paul, remember? Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So Paul, the terror to Christians, the overzealous activist, was saved and we know went on to do great things in the name of Jesus. So thank goodness it's not up to us to decide who should hear the gospel and who shouldn't. Now I know sometimes we're going to try and they're not going to be interested, and they're not. We dust off our hands and our feet and we walk on to the next person, but we need to try. But you know, 47% of Americans still believe that the Bible is in some way inspired by God. And that means that almost half the people that we meet and we come in contact with have at least some belief to work with and to start a conversation with. And I think that we need to keep that in mind as we go out and we try to share the gospel. Because God can use anybody to do his will. And Christ's blood can change anyone. Remember, it washes away the sins of anyone. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what we may think of you when we see you, we have to keep those things in mind. It changes that destination to heaven. It gives them hope. Romans 5 and 8, but God committed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the thing is, we're all different to someone. People look at us and think different things. People probably look at me and think, I don't want to talk to that guy, that nerd and his comic books and all that. What a goofball. I didn't call him that guy. But thankfully, people did. But we're all different. And yet we look around this room and we got tough guys in here. We got busy working women. We may have a con man. I don't know. But we got all kinds of people in here. We got activists. At least hopefully they were a con man. But maybe they are now and they haven't began their walk yet. But today is that opportunity because it doesn't matter to the blood of Christ.